The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. The, the sermon of the day is called, John Prepares the Way, and that is John the Baptist. And we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 3, verse 1 through 20. Follow along as I read. This is picking up right after that short story of the incident of Jesus at 12 years old in the temple. Now there's a transition as Jesus continued to grow from that point on from age 12 till he was age 30. We don't know anything about what happened during those intervening 18 years other than he was just a normal son, a normal Jewish boy, normal and also perfect and sinless. Growing up with his younger siblings, yes, he had brothers and sisters who came after him, and he was just a delight, no doubt, to his parents so we go 18 years, and now we are introduced to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and it begins with the one who would prepare the way in fulfillment of Scripture. And look at Luke chapter 3, verse 1, and we'll read all the way through verse 20. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene during or in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he, John, came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, who said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. And said to John, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to do. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with holy, the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to them. But when Herod 
the tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. John prepares the way. So we introduced the ministry of John the Baptist, and in these 20 verses, I just want to highlight three main themes that run throughout this text, and I'll give you those three words if that helps you as we go through the text. As we look at the ministry of John, in summary fashion, this pretty much covers the whole ministry of John. We don't know how long it ran, maybe six months or so, and actually this passage encapsulates it all from the beginning of his ministry to how his ministry ended, being locked up in prison and then executed. First is verses 1 through 6, we'll look at the history John the Baptist's ministry is historical. It really happened. He's not a mythical figure. Do you know that there are people today who, so-called scholars and other people, who say that Jesus was not a real person? And that even John the Baptist was not a real figure? No. John was real, and Luke is sure to show us that by the historical context in which he describes. It's quite amazing. So the history, verses 1 through 6 of John's ministry... So history and then verses 7 through 14 is the ministry. So history and then ministry. The nature of his ministry is described in verses 7 through 14. It's a simple ministry, yet it is profound. It's ministry that we need to replicate, and we'll talk about that. And then after the history and the ministry, finally, verses 15 to 20 is the legacy. The legacy of John the Baptist's ministry. So we'll look at those three things. First, let's look at the history. Keep in mind the purpose. Who's writing this? Is, this is Luke the historian. He's often called Luke the historian. Probably around six, between 60 and 65 A.D. This is like 35 years after Jesus has died, risen, and gone to heaven. The Gospels, Matthew, has been written. Luke, uh, Mark's probably been written. Now Luke is writing his account. Luke introduces new information. The Spirit of God is giving Luke information through direct revelation, but also Luke is contacting first-hand sources and eyewitnesses of some of these accounts and writing it down as he's led by the Spirit of God, giving us inspired Scripture. We can rely on it. It's a historical account. He's being careful in what he's putting in the context here. And his original audience was this man named Theophilus, whoever he was. He was a man of respect, a man of means, uh, maybe even a man of royalty or influence for all we know. The great Theophilus. Could have been that he was interested in Christianity, and then came to know Christ. We believe that by the book of Acts, he's come to know Christ, and Luke's help him, helping him grow in the faith. So he's writing to Theophilus, but there's a wider audience that Luke has in mind, not to just Theophilus, but he knew that this word would go beyond Theophilus to the people of Luke's day, to unbelievers, to those who would inquire, and also through the saints through the ages. So this is also to us and the first thing Luke lays out is he wants to know there is a historical context to this ministry of John the Baptist. There's a secular history that he gives account for. There's a religious history in Luke's day, but there's also a biblical history in the context as well as he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. And so this was important for Theophilus. Here it is 35 years later. Theophilus, maybe you weren't around at the time. Maybe you've heard a few things, but let me set the record straight. First and foremost, what you need to know is that this Jesus Christ is real. He is who he said he was. 
And we know that by virtue of reliable witnesses. First and foremost was the God-ordained and God-sent prophet named John the Baptist who came in the line with the credentials of and like Old Testament prophets. And these things happen in a true historical context. And so Luke cites the historical context for Theophilus. He cites the secular political history at the time. He, he cites the demographics at the time. He cites the religious history at the time that's going on, laying the groundwork and setting the stage for John and the historicity of this account. So let's go ahead and look at it, the history. First are these, just a mouthful in these first two verses, and a lot of times we just read through these kind of things because we either don't want to take time and figure out what who are all these people? Do they even matter? How does that impact my life? It's not really relevant. It doesn't give me the warm fuzzies. This isn't going to help me at work tomorrow. Every word of God in the Scriptures is profitable. Every word of God. It is significant. When I read verses 1 and 2, or when I read verses 1 through 6 uh, in chapter 3, as I meditated on this week, if I could distill it down, I came up with two words. Silence and darkness. Silence and darkness. I think that's one of the things Luke's trying to communicate to Theophilus. Theophilus, let me take you back 35 years. Let me show you where Israel was at in the history of the ages, in the history of the world, what was going on. Yes, that same Israel that's in the Old Testament, that same Israel who their God was Yahweh, that same Israel who had all these promises from God, beginning with Abraham, that he would give them land. He promised that in Genesis chapter 12. He told Abraham from the beginning, I'm going to give this land to your descendants. And then in chapter 15 and 17 of Genesis, God revisited Abraham and said, I'm going to give this land to your descendants forever. Not only in that, in chapter 17, he said, and I'm going to, kings shall come from you. Kings shall reign on my behalf. Jewish kings, Israelite kings in the land of Israel for your descendants, for your people. God spoke to Israel, made these promises. Some of that came to fruition in the time of when God raised up King David, the second king of Israel, the king of Judah. David, the king who loved God, who knew God, who loved Yahweh. And God set up David as king, as a perpetual king in terms of his throne that would endure forever. And before David died, God appeared to David and said, I'm going to keep your reign, your throne, your legacy, your descendants in this position of leadership in Israel, not just for a while, but forever. And specifically, I'm going to raise up a descendant after you who will come for your, from your loins, David. He will be from the house of David. He will be from the tribe of Judah. And he will reign on your throne over Israel forever in the land of Israel. Every Jew who knew anything about the Old Testament Scriptures from the time of David, when that was written in 2 Samuel, 1000 B.C., knew that promise. They were looking for that promise. They were expecting that promise. And, and in this time when Luke is writing to Theophilus and, and you look around the landscape, the political landscape, the religious landscape, the spiritual landscape, the demographics of what's going on, none of this is being fulfilled. Do all of the descendants of Abraham, the Jews, the Israelites, do they own all of the land as God had promised in Genesis 15? No. They don't own the land. As a matter of fact, they're being intruded upon and dominated by the Roman Empire. Pagan Romans own the land. The Jews or the Israelites are allowed to live there by permission if they follow the rules. 
So who's in the land? Occupiers. Not only that, who's ruling in that day? Where are the kings? Are they Jewish in keeping with the promise that God made to Abraham when he said, I will raise up kings from your loins? Are they from the house of David as God promised David in 1000 BC that I will raise up a specific king to sit on your throne in the land of Israel forever? And then in the days of John the Baptist and Jesus' ministry looking around, there's, there's no Jewish king. There's no fulfillment literally of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant at that time. Who are these kings? Well, look at it. Who are the rulers of that day? Instead of David and godly men like him from the house of Judah, we are introduced to Tiberius Caesar. He's the Caesar. He's uh, followed up on Augustus Caesar, who was introduced in chapter 2. Who is Tiberius Caesar? He's a pagan. He's an idol worshiper. He's a vicious, wicked, evil, capricious, maniacal dictator. That's who he is, Tiberius. Tiberius, who had authority over Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate mentioned here. Who is he? He's a prefect, like a governor, ruling over the area, it says right here, of Judea and the area of Jerusalem, the very place where Jesus would be crucified. Jesus could not be crucified by Roman execution without the permission of Pontius Pilate. And I would also posit that Jesus couldn't have been crucified by Roman execution apart from the permission of Pontius Pilate, nor the permission of the reigning Caesar Tiberius. Common denominator of all these names mentioned, by the way, are people who either hated Jesus directly or had a say or gave some, lent some authority to his execution. That's why when you read the first two verses, I'm thinking, this is darkness. These are opposers of Christ, anti-Christs, every single one of them, and not one of them is a Jewish king in keeping with God's promise. Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, the one who actually, when you think Pontius Pilate, you should think coward. There's nothing good about Pontius Pilate, coward. God tried to speak to him and warn him through a prophecy he gave his wife. He wouldn't listen. He defied the word of God, coward. We know that from historical accounts as well in Josephus. He was just an evil, wicked man. doesn't get any better with the other names, uh, Pontius Pilate, and then there's Herod the Tetrarch. Who's that? Herod, the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, vicious, wicked, evil, non-Jew, Idumean. Had three sons. One of them was this Herod right here, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, and was given a little portion of Herod the Great's area around the area of Galilee, and that's where Jesus lived and ministered in the, the area of Galilee under the jurisdiction of Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, the same Herod who would have John the Baptist executed, killed, the same Herod who would have Jesus given back to Pontius Pilate to be executed and killed. These are wicked men. His brother Philip, he was no better. He was the half-brother of Antipas and also the son of uh, Herod the Great, another evil, wicked man. All these people, they're not Jewish, by the way. They worship false religion. Then there's Lysanias. He was a ruler. He was a tetrarch. He was a, a petty wannabe king. That's what that means. These four names, Pontius Pilate, Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Philip, and Lysanias, four men, four petty kings, or nobodies, but they were somebody in their own mind because they had their little piece or plot of land that Rome allowed them to rule, and it was all in the area of Palestine, the area in which Jesus ministered over the course of three years. That's why they're there. Every one of them had a hand in Jesus' death and re rejection, and none of them are Jews. Lysa Do you even know who Lysanias was, is? I don't. I didn't. He's an obscure figure of history. He was a real person. We know nothing about him, but he reigns supreme here. He had authority. 
in the days when John and Jesus began their ministry. And then we're introduced to John the Baptist, this obscure, unknown, kind of different, but some people say weird guy living out in the desert for years by himself. And then when he shows up, he's dressed in camel's hair and a belt, and his diet is grasshoppers and honey. And he has one message. He's single-minded. He doesn't multitask. He prepares the way of the Messiah. And yet he's the one that makes the impact in history. Today, 2,000 years later, we look back, and who are the names that we know? Who are the names that made a difference? Who are the names that made a splash and influenced all of history? Is it Lysanias, who you've never heard of? Is it Tiberius that is totally obscure and few people even know who he is, even though he was a Caesar? Is it Herod Philip that few people even know anything about? No, it was John the Baptist. Was he a king? No. Was he a ruler? No. Did he have any jurisdiction? Zero. Yet he served the king of kings and the Lord of lords with the greatest truth there ever was. That's what this story is about. And so John the Baptist is sprung onto Israel really at its low point in history. Israel had never been this low, even compared to the times of the judges. The lowest point in Israel's history was probably during the times of the judges when every man did what was right in his own eyes. I would say this was even a darker, lower time for Israel in light of the circumstances and those who ruled and the oppression that was going on. Oh, and in light of who the religious leaders were of the day in verse 2, the high priest Annas and Caiaphas, who were they? They're supposed to be representing the Jewish religion. They're the authorities on Old Testament Scripture. Yet we know what they are. They are sons of the devil. That's what Jesus said. They are filled with hatred. They hate Jesus. They hate the truth. They mislead the people. They are deceivers. They abuse religion. They manipulate it and use it for their own gain. They prostitute the law of Moses. That's Annas and Caiaphas. And they lead a conspiracy to crucify the Messiah. That's who the religious leaders are of the day. You talk about darkness. So the day was darker than it was even in the days of the judges when every man did what was right in his own eyes. Spiritually speaking, one of the reasons why I think Israel was even darker then is it wasn't every man in Israel among the Jews did what was right in his own eyes, where at least God would send a judge every 30, 40 years to get them out of their rut, a savior, if you will. That wasn't happening here. For 400 years, there was nobody to come and get them out of this spiritual rut. And so that spirituality and the religious leaders of the day were total hypocrites, entrenched in human tradition, deceiving and leading the people. The people served at their mercy. And it wasn't the people who did what was right in their own eyes in the days of Jesus. It was the Sadducees and the Pharisees who did what was right in their own eyes. Quite a difference. So, What's Luke communicating to Theophilus? Theophilus, Israel was at its lowest point in history. Utter darkness from every conceivable point. Politically, economically, spiritually, religiously. In utter darkness. Even the religious leaders did not have true spirituality. They were utter hypocrites leading people astray. And this is what God broke through. He broke through the darkness with the light. Jesus is called the light, and this is why. He brought light. He brought truth. He exposed the light on the darkness. He gave hope to man. To, to live in darkness is to have no hope. Jesus is the light gives hope because He explains the true way of salvation. I said silence and darkness. Jesus brings the light to dispel the darkness. What about the silence? No prophetic word from God. God hasn't speaking to, been speaking to the nation for 400 years except for just a few words at the birth of, of the Messiah and John the Baptist kind of over in a corner, but not to the nation. They hadn't heard truth. They weren't getting direct revelation. They had no voice for God. God wasn't speaking in a living, dynamic way, the way He did in the Old Testament with the prophets for over 400 years. And now all of a sudden, 
there's a voice from God. And it's described as John the Baptist, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, a voice crying, speaking truth, proclaiming truth. That was the ministry of John. And that perfectly describes somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ today. Somebody who is not a Christian. They're not born again. You know what? Their life is really like behind the veil. You can describe it in two words, silence and darkness. They don't know God, so they're not hearing from God. They don't believe in God, so they're not hearing the truth of God. There is no voice of God directly speaking in their life. There's utter silence. They have to fill it up with something else, with a counterfeit, false religion, false worldviews, whatever it is. So they live in silence. They don't want to hear from God until He changes their heart. They also live in darkness. What does that mean? They have no hope. They have no salvation, so they have no hope. Behind the veil of the fake smile or the superficial look where they try to conjure up happiness or joy or meaning in life or purpose, every unbeliever really falls in the same camp ultimately. Looking deep into their heart, according to Scripture, it's, it's darkness. They have no hope. They don't know Christ. They don't know God. And that's what John the Baptist was bringing to this nation. He was going to dispel the, the, the darkness by introducing Jesus, the light of the world, and also crying out with the voice of God, direct revelation, like a prophet of old from the Old Testament, speaking truth in a new and refreshing way that would lead people to salvation because he was bringing a message, and it was, the message was of the knowledge of salvation. That's what Zechariah prayed over John the Baptist when he was born and eight days old. God allowed Zacharias' father to speak a word of prophecy, and he's, he's got his son there, little John the Baptist, and he, he goes on for almost uh, many verses, and he says to the child, and you child, John the Baptist, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his way. How did Jesus uh, uh, get prepared by John? What did John do to prepare for Jesus? Specifically, it was one thing. He prepared the people by giving his people the knowledge of salvation. That's what we need to do for people. We need to give people the knowledge of salvation. That comes with preaching the truth, preaching the gospel, and that's what John did. Verse 3 says, and, he, and so finally John begins his ministry, probably at about age 30 as well, and he came into all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism. So he, he's, he was a preacher, first and foremost. It was one thing called uh, John the Baptist to be a preacher, an Old Testament prophet. And his, his message was simple right here. What did he do? He preached repentance unto the forgiveness of sin. He preached repentance that would result in the forgiveness of sin. He, he preached the message of salvation of how people might get saved and come to know God. Preached it to the nation and he preached it to individuals. That's the good news. Forgiveness of sin. This fulfilled the prophet Isaiah. And then verse 4 and 5 and 6, Luke quotes from the Old Testament, showing Theophilus that John the Baptist fulfills Scripture, Malachi, and other passages that said before the Messiah comes, the messenger needs to come to prepare the way, and John the Baptist fills the bill, just like Isaiah said. And it says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's exactly what John the Baptist is. He's crying. He breaks the silence of divine revelation of over 400 years. He's in the wilderness, literally. That's where he's been living. Literally down there in the Jordan Valley, by the Jordan River, by the Dead Sea by himself, trusting God, being prepared by the Lord, a voice of one crying in the world, and then preparing and saying, make ready the way of the Lord, and that's what he did, make his path straight. And eventually, when the Messiah comes the first time and then the second time, every ravine will be filled 
Every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth. Verse 5 hasn't been fulfilled yet. That will in the future because of Jesus. But verse 6 is true, or began to be true, that all flesh, all of humanity will see the salvation of God because ever since Jesus was introduced as Savior of the world, the gospel has been going out continually, perpetually, all throughout history, and it still goes out to this day. And we are responsible for giving that gospel out as well. Letting people know, people who don't know God, who don't have light and who don't have a voice of God, we've got to dispel silence and the darkness, as John the Baptist has been called to do. So that's the historical context of John the Baptist. So after the history, let's look at the nature of his ministry, which was introduced a little bit in verse 3. What was the nature of John the Baptist's ministry? He was a preacher. There's three or four different verbs used here regarding his preaching ministry. One of the words for preaching was just heralding, a proclaimer. Hear ye, hear ye, a formal announcement on behalf of the authority, on behalf of the king. Take note, comply, submit, and obey. Hear ye. That was one of the verbs used. Another one of the verbs used describing John the Baptist here is he good-newsed people. That's a verb. Good-newsed people. Euangelizioed people. He good-newsed them. It wasn't just a message of wrath only. He didn't stand there and hold a sign, turn or burn. It's like, where's the good news in that, man? I hope you got something good on the other side. Flip that sign around. Oh, okay. Boop. Believe in Jesus. Good news. So the nature of his ministry is he was a preacher and a baptizer. Verse 7. So he began saying to the crowds. Oh, let me go back to verse 3. Just to enhance and introduce the nature of his ministry, he came into all the district around Jordan preaching the baptism of So he breaks his silence, comes out of nowhere, screaming at the top of his lungs. He goes into the city, he goes where the crowds are, primarily around Jerusalem, Judea, and all the surrounding areas, and he's proclaiming at the top of his lungs, and he is uh, saying, thus saith the Lord. By the way, key phrase in verse 2 Describing John the Baptist, it said, at this time, the Word of God came to John. That same phrase is used in reference to most of the Old Testament prophets. The Word of God came to Jeremiah. The Word of God came to Isaiah. The Word of God came to Amos, and on and on. He was a formal prophet of God. The Word of God came to a direct revelation. This was his mission. This is what he did. He was single-minded. He was focused. He was obedient. He wasn't running away from the call. He was a preacher of God. He knew his message. What was it? He was preaching a baptism of repentance. That was it. As a matter of fact, Matthew chapter 3 introduced the first word of John's message. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. So repentance was a basic part of his message. Repentance. Right here in chapter 3, repentance used a couple of times in this passage. Verse 8, again, repentance, metanaeo. Two words, meta, to change, not with the mind, change your mind. You need to change your mind, not about just your theology. You need to change your mind about your life and your sin and see it as God sees it. You need to change your mind. You need to own up to being a sinner. That's what repentance means, neta eo. There are many other synonyms for repentance in the New Testament. Most of them, they emphasize turn. Turn and be saved. Turn and be saved. You're going this way towards sin and the devil and hell. Turn. Turn from idols and turn unto God, said Paul. That's repentance. That was his message. This, all these words for repentance come from a Hebrew 
word sub, which means literally to turn. Turn from your evil ways. Turn from your sin. You offend your maker. Offend him no more. Admit your sin. Forsake your sin. Ask God to help you forsake your sin. That is repentance. That's what we need to preach. That's what John preached. There is an entire movement in the evangelical world today that began probably in the 1950s and just kept growing and came to fruition in the 1980s where we were being told, and we're still being told this today by many influential evangelical Bible teachers, that when we go and witness to unbelievers, whatever you do, don't tell them to repent. I'm not kidding. You just tell them to believe in Jesus. That's the, the gospel. It's only good news, man. You got any bad news in there? It's not the gospel. Don't tell them about hell. Don't tell them to repent. Don't talk about the devil. Don't talk about their sin. That's bad news. We only give them the good news. Believe in Jesus, and you'll go to heaven. That's the message. And they literally argue and say that you can't tell an unbeliever to repent because you're asking him to do a work, and unbelievers can't do good works. And if you're asking him to repent, you're asking him to do a good work, and you're not saved by good works. So you just tell them to believe, not repent. That is a very dominant message in American Christianity. It's being spread around the world. I remember I was preaching here one time not long ago, and I was done. I gave the gospel, and somebody came up. It was a visitor, so it's none of you here. You don't need to worry. And they reprimanded me up and down for a good 15 minutes, telling me I perverted and distorted the gospel. Why is that? Because you're telling unbelievers to repent of their sin in order to be saved. And I said, well, that's it's in the Bible. It's what Jesus said. It's what Peter said. It's what Paul said. It's what John the Baptist said. No, that's a false gospel. Well, what am I supposed to tell them? Just to believe in Jesus. Now, I wasn't too shocked by that because I've been hearing that for 30 years. But what about John the Baptist? Well, his message was a different message. His message was only for his time for the Jews of that time. That's what I was told. No, it's not. It's the same message. It's the same message that's been true from day one when God called Adam to repent and Abel to repent and Cain to repent and all throughout church history and all throughout biblical history. That is the message. And then John the Baptist was calling people to repent and get right with your maker. He is the judge. You must be forgiven of your sin. You must own up to being a sinner. Your sin will condemn you to hell. This is all consistent with Old Testament theology. They knew this. That's why so many people were coming out to John the Baptist. He was a Jew. These Jews knew it. They learned this in the synagogue. They knew the Scriptures. They felt the guilt, the piercing of the Holy Spirit and His work on their mind, their heart, and their conscience. Well, it said all of Jerusalem and all the surrounding regions of Judea were coming out to John the Baptist to hear his message, to be baptized for six months. And this is why the leaders of Israel in Jerusalem, they were jealous, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the scribes. Oh, he's got a following. We don't have a following like this. Everybody's going out to see John the Baptist. What's going on? Who is this guy? We better go find out who, is this, who this guy is. We need to interrogate. Where did he come from? Where did he study? Who does he stand for? What is he preaching? Who does he think he is? That was the attitude of the Pharisees. And for six months, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came out to see John the Baptist. They commiserated with the crowds around John the Baptist. They even asked John the Baptist questions. They talked to John the Baptist. They got near the baptisms, and the Scripture says that the Pharisees refused to get baptized by John. They were not going to endorse his ministry. So that takes us to the nature of his ministry, verse 7. So he begins preaching, saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him. So what we see here, the nature of his ministry, is actually what he's doing. He's preaching, 
in a manifold manner. He's a herald. He's proclaiming truth. He's calling people to repentance. He's condemning them of their sin. He says they can be forgiven of their sin, giving them the knowledge of salvation, says Luke chapter 2, verse 77, how they can be saved. That's the good news. You're a sinner. You're wicked. You, must, you will be punished for your sin unless you repent. If you repent, the good news, God will forgive you. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is loving. It's not by your works. You can be saved. You become a child of God, eternally secure with Yahweh. That's the message that John was preaching. And give evidence of it. Give evidence by the fruits in your life. And give evidence right now in front of everybody publicly, even before those hypocrites over there in the corner who rule this place, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, that you fear. Get baptized right now if you mean it. That's what baptism was for. It was an outward sign that you were submitting to God. God the ultimate judge, having no fear of man. So that was the nature of his ministry, is baptizing by preaching the knowledge of salvation and calling sinners to repentance as a sign that they meant it, that they truly believed, and that they are forgiven by God. And then there's several reactions to his preaching. Matthew tells us that the crowds were just uh, coming from everywhere, coming in on John. That's why John had disciples. He trained up disciples to help him baptize because there were so many people. And he was John, John's gospel tells us that he was baptizing in strategic locations where there was a lot of water because he had to do a lot of dunking. And the word baptism, by the way, means to dunk, to immerse. And that's the kind of baptism that John the Baptist did. He baptized by immersion. He baptized people who heard the truth and then responded by belief. Those are the people he baptized. He's not baptizing babies. So he sets the model, really, of the mode of baptism, the only mode of baptism that we see in Scripture. It is a little bit of a different nature in the content of the message, because it was a baptism of repentance in the name of Yahweh in preparation of the coming of the Messiah who would save them, which is different of the baptism that Jesus gave to the church when he died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. And he told his apostles, okay, you're still going to baptize. You're going to baptize people after you call them to repentance and give them the knowledge of salvation. But two new things, one in particular, when you baptize them, it's not a baptism of repentance like John's Baptist, John the Baptist's baptism, but it's Baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the triune God. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was a fuller baptism. The fuller reality of the revelation of Christ had come. So it takes baptism to another level. But at bottom, it's very much the same. It was an outward sign and symbol, not to become right with God, but an outward symbol, a living metaphor, letting people know publicly that you had given your life to God. You have turned from your sin. You believe in God. And that's validated through this act, this ordinance we call baptism. So that's what John the Baptist was doing. So it's very simple. Preaching and baptizing, preaching and baptizing, preaching and baptizing. He wasn't writing any books. Preaching and baptizing. Simple gospel. Believe in Yahweh. He made you. He created you. You're sinful. You're fallen. Due to Adam and Eve and the sin you've inherited, just like you know in your Old Testament scriptures. You've been separated from God. You're, if you're not saved, you're a child of the devil. You need to repent so that you might be born again and know God. And the way that that's possible is God is a gracious God, a merciful God, and 
He provides a blood sacrifice as a substitute in your part, and that's what the Old Testament sacrifices were. They were a picture of this sacrifice that death had to happen on behalf of sinners as a substitute, and the fulfillment is before us. The fulfillment is here. This day in history, and His name is Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. That was the good news. So this is what he began saying. So there's a reaction from the crowds. They're feeling guilty. They're hearing this message. They're coming from all walks of life. There's the elite. There's the uneducated. There's the white-collar workers and the blue-collar workers. And you see that represented here. The religious, the irreligious, they're all responding. They're all asking questions. They want to know more. There's converts from every demographic. Verse 7, here's the first crowd. John's preaching this message. And so he began saying to the crowds, this crowd, the word for crowd here refers to a group within a group. So you got this big, you got the masses, and among the masses, there's this little crowd, this identifiable little faction of a crowd who are homogeneous in their, homogeneous in their views. That's what it means in verse 7. So he began saying to the crowds who are going out to be baptized. So there's a specific identifiable crowd coming out regularly to John's baptism uh, gatherings and his preaching sessions. And this, this crowd keeps showing up, the specific crowd. And John notices them for whatever reason. Maybe they, they're in the front row. They're butting their way up to the front row. Spectators standing there, watching, observing, looking down their nose, inspecting. Hmm. We know from John 1, sending their interrogators to interrogate John. He knows who they are. Luke doesn't tell us here who they are. The crowds who are going out to be baptized. Who is this? It's not the masses, because look at his response. John the Baptist says, you brood of vipers, you snakes, you no-good, slithering snakes. We know who this is. This is not the masses of people, a specific group of people. Matthew chapter 3 tells us, it's a parallel account, it's exacting. We know this is the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's who it is. So he says to the Pharisees and Sadducees, man, you guys show up to everything I do and say. Every time I open the door, oh, I'm always outside. Anytime, anytime I start preaching, you're here. Some people think that's probably admirable, but I know you guys. I see you guys. I hear what you say. I know the questions you ask me. I've also noticed that not one of you has taken the courage to get baptized by me. Not one of them was willing to get baptized by John. These are the Sadducees and Pharisees. These are the ones who would spearhead the execution of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the ones who would oppose Jesus for three and a half years of his ministry. These are the ones who would try to publicly humiliate Jesus all the time, stump the chump and ask him a question from the Bible he couldn't answer, to expose him as a phony. These are the ones who publicly in front of the temple when Jesus is teaching, they would call him a demon, that he, had, he was the son of a demon, that he was a bastard child. These are the words that they were using, that he was born of immorality or porneia, that he was the son of the devil. These Sadducees, these Pharisees. So John was given wisdom by God to be discerning. You brood of vipers, you slithering snakes. What are you doing here? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? If you do not repent of your sin, God's wrath will come down upon you. That's in the Old Testament. That's in the New Testament. That's true. That's a part of the gospel. When we share the gospel with people, we've got to tell them about the wrath of God. God is a just God. He's the creator. He is the judge. We must all face him as judge. He hates sin. He is holy. He can't tolerate it. He must punish it. He will punish sin forever and ever, eternally, ultimately in hell, and we need to be saved from that. 
And God can save you from that by believing in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His death and resurrection on your behalf. Not by your works, but by grace through faith. Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is coming? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And they weren't, they were hypocrites. You say you know God, you Pharisees and Sadducees, you actually stand up there and try to teach the Bible to people and make authoritative proclamations. They don't even know God. And what was evident was the fruit of their life. They were legalistic, they were unloving, they were manipulative, they were full of pride, they were total hypocrites out in, in the streets publicly praying and they could care less about individuals and on and on it went. They were just blatant, vile hypocrites. And it was obvious to all. And they only did religion to advance their own agenda. You don't have the fruit of righteousness in your life. So the implication here is if you're a true believer, if you've truly repented, if you've truly believed in the Messiah, God would change your life on the inside out. God would change you. He'd regenerate you. He'd make you a new person. He'd give you a new nature. You'd be a, a born-again child of God from the inside out. And as a result, inevitably, you would have new thoughts and as a result, new actions and new desires in your life. And over time, people see it. It is manifest to all. We call that good works. You don't have good works to get saved. You have good works because you are saved. And the Pharisees had none. You're hypocrites. You live in contradiction. You don't have fruits fitting with repentance. And he knew what they would say. Oh, well, we're, we're sons of Abraham. Everybody that's a descendant of Abraham gets saved. Not. It's not true. You don't get saved by your ethnicity, who your parents are, where you went to church, where you went to synagogue, your reputation. God saves every human soul, one individual at a time, based on how they respond to the knowledge of salvation that they have been given regarding the Christ. So you can't use, uh, pull the I'm of Abraham card. So he categorically rejects that, puts them in their place, and then warns them again. Indeed, the axe is already the axe of judgment from Almighty God, the axe, is already laid at the door of the trees. Uh, God the judge is coming to chop down anybody who rejects him and doesn't believe, and you guys are in jeopardy, in, and it's imminent. So every tree that does not bear good fruit, it's simply evidence that you don't believe. You haven't been transformed. You haven't bowed the knee to God. And as a result, you're going to suffer the consequences. God is going to cut you down, throw you into fire. That's a reference to eternal hell. It is real. It's a real place. Speaking of preaching the true gospel, when we go and preach the gospel to people, we preach what John preached. It's the, the message of repentance, right? Because it's the same message Jesus gave in Luke 24. Go out and he told his apostles, you preach repentance and forgiveness of sin. So we must talk about repentance, which means we must talk about sin. That's at the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for sin. That's the gospel. We preach sin. We preach repentance. And if you forsake your sin, you are saved. If you cling to your sin, you will be judged and damned. We need to warn people because we love people. We need to warn them of hell. I remember one of my closest friends, he's a pastor now, probably close to 40 years old. His testimony is clear as bell to this day at age 40. I remember he grew up, he was born and raised in a Christian home. Dad was a pastor. Had theology coming out the years at age five. Then he went to a vacation Bible school. And I don't know who the lady was, but she just simply talked about John 3.16, how to be saved, gave the gospel. And in that message, she talked about you need to repent of your sin. 
and just because you were born in a Christian home doesn't mean you're going to be saved. You need to talk to God, the Creator. He hates your sin. He's angry at your sin. The only way you can be forgiven of your sin is to repent. If you don't repent of your sin and you die, you go to hell. Hell's a real place, and you will burn forever and be tormented by God. That's what the Bible says. Well, this was VBS on Monday. It's like, why did my parents send me here? I'm already saved. He said he went into the bathroom later that day and hid in one of the stalls, crying, got down on his knees, and asked God to save him. Well, save you from what? He said, I prayed, and I asked God to save me from hell. Now, is that legitimate? Absolutely. God is the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. He doesn't just save us from our sin. He saves us from the consequences of sin, which is eternal hell. And he said when he prayed that, oh, just instant relief. And he knew, I, I knew God that day. I've been fired up for Jesus ever since, age five. Now he's 40. Simple. A, a message that a five-year-old can understand. He knew he was a sinner. He knew hell was a reality. Uh regarding his ministry, verse 10. And the crowds were questioning. So that was the first crowd. It was the Pharisees questioning him. And he, he gives them the answer that they deserve. Answer a fool according to his folly, and John did. Then there's several other crowds there in demographics. You got the, so you got the righteous, self-righteous, snobby Pharisees and Sadducees probably in the front row right there, making a mockery of everything. They're there. Then you got maybe way in the back row, you could hardly see them. There, oh, there's the tax gatherers that nobody likes. How come nobody's standing around them like they got the cooties? Oh, yeah, because they're traitors. They can't be forgiven. Oh, yeah, they can't get into heaven. Yeah, those guys. Oh, wait, is that Zacchaeus? No, he's too small. I wouldn't see him anyway. Oh, the publican? Yeah, that guy. Well, they were there. And then there were some policemen there who worked for Herod Antipas. They were evil. They were wicked. They worked for money. They worked for power and position. They abused people. They abused their authority. They had delegated civil authority. They abused it. The policemen of Herod Antipas, they're mentioned in here. So let's look at these crowds. There are other crowds questioning, uh, then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to, be, is to do likewise. So w what are we supposed to do? This wasn't to do nice things to get saved. All, all John is saying is if, you know what, if you truly believe and repent of your sin and trust in God, God's going to change your life, and it's going to be evident in your attitude, how you live, and how you view other people, which means if you're a true believer, you will love other people, not just your friends, not just your family, not just your neighbors, not just people like you. You will love all people made in the image of God, and you will clearly make that known by how you give to people in need. So instead of stockpiling all your goodies... Why don't you help other people that God made in His image too? That was His answer. There's another group, verse 12. Look at the tax collectors. It's way back in the corner probably. They came to be baptized too. Can you imagine that? These tax collectors. They were traitors. They were pretty pathetic because they, they just pretty much abandoned their Judaism that they learned and decided to work for the Roman government so they can just make a bunch of money and rip people off. This is like, is it the sheriff of Nottingham and Robin Hood? That guy going around ripping people off, stealing from the church mouse? That's what these guys did. So they were pretty crass. 
well, they were convicted. They heard the message. They knew what they were doing was wrong, and so they, they speak out of their conviction. Teacher, what shall we do? John the Baptist, what do, how do we get saved? Is there mercy for us? Is there grace for us? Yeah, there is, verse 13. Notice he didn't say, you know what you need to do? You need to quit that business and stop being a tax collector. Stop working for the Roman government. Stop being a traitor. He didn't say that. He said, basically he said, be a good tax collector, be a fair tax collector, be a lover of the people while you're tax collecting, knowing that you work for God now. He said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to do. So John the Baptist didn't seek to upend the institution, which was corrupt to the core. There's another group there, verse 14. I referred to them earlier, the police and some soldiers. These are not Roman soldiers. Roman soldiers weren't out following John the Baptist in the Jordan Valley, seeking to hear the message about Yahweh to get baptized. These are policemen who maybe worked around the temple, like I said, worked for Herod Antipas. Uh, they were pretty evil too. They were crass. They may have been Idumeans. They may have been, they, were, they probably were Jews who were traitors as well. And be in Herod's favor, that was for their good. It would help maybe protect their family. A lot of perks and benefits to be a traitor and abusing their civil authority. And they were, and they're convicted, these police. And w w what about us? What, what should we do? Should we, should we quit working as police and working for Herod Antipas, this wicked guy? Should we give it up and go become a monk and do something spiritual and righteous? No, stay on the police force. Truly repent of God and change your ways. Love God and do your job. Don't take money from anyone as a policeman by force, because they were doing that. Don't accuse anybody falsely in the legal process like you're doing. You know one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness. Stop doing that and be content with your wages. Trust God to provide. If you're changed on the inside, then you need to change your life or it'll be evident that you have. Be obedient. So that's the nature of John's ministry, a call to repentance Repent to God, recognize your sin, call on Him to be merciful and Savior. And here's, let's look at His legacy, the legacy of John the Baptist. It's, it's manifold, manifold, the legacy of all this preaching. Like I said, it may have gone on for six months before Jesus came. Prepare the way, prepare the way, the Messiah is coming, He is here. And then finally, after six months, He introduces Jesus by baptizing Him. Here is the Lamb of God. So here's the synoptist uh, that's a legacy of John, verse 15. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John, so they knew, man, the word of God has come to him. This hasn't happened since the days of Malachi. He speaks powerfully. He speaks courageously. He, he speaks courage in the face of the Sadducees and Pharisees. He has no fear. He's single-minded. It's clearly he comes from Yahweh. He's consistent with the revelation of Old Testament Scripture. Who is this man? Is he the coming Messiah? Some were asking that question. John got that question deliberately, asking if he was the Christ. Verse 16, John answered, no, I'm not, I'm not the Christ, he said in John chapter 1 and here as well. And John answered and said to them all, as for me, no, I'm just a lowly servant. That's all. I'm not great. I want to introduce you to the one who's great, the one who's more powerful than me, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of Mary, the Savior of the world, the one that came in fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture the Savior of every soul that would believe and repent, the Savior of the nation of Israel, the Savior ultimately of the Gentiles who would believe, the light of the world, 
That's who I want to introduce you to. That's the one who is great. That's the Messiah. I, I baptize you with water. I, I just do this menial task. It's symbolic. That's all. Getting dunked in water. By the way, did you know that most of the people who got dunked by John the Baptist probably truly didn't believe and get saved? It was superficial and shallow, probably. How do we know that? Could have been thousands and thousands of people. Well, when it came time to ask if Jesus was guilty or innocent, what did they cry? The masses cried out, crucify him, crucify him. His blood be on our head and on our children. Those were the same people, many of them, who got baptized by John. Jesus rises, ascends into heaven, and there's only 120 people gathered waiting for His return. Well, just because people don't believe in their shallow, does that mean we don't preach? No, we keep preaching. We keep preaching and keep preaching and keep preaching. And even the word that we preached, it doesn't lie dormant. It doesn't go ineffectual. God uses that as long as that person has breath. And through the Spirit of God, He may transform their life before they die in the 11th hour. Faithfulness. Faithfulness is what we're called to, and that's what John was called to. But I just baptize. There's one greater than me. He's coming who's mightier than I, and I'm not fit even to untie His sandals. This blessed Messiah, this blessed Savior. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. In the Holy Spirit and fire. I believe Holy Spirit and fire go together because of the preposition that's used in front of the word Holy Spirit and fire there. There is a, a fire-like purifying ministry that comes with the baptism, the spiritual transaction of the Spirit of God as He works in the hearts of people. It's not the fire of hell. The fire of hell He's already mentioned earlier in the fire of hell He mentions in verse 17, so it's there. But when you do the grammar and you got a preposition in front of two nouns, it's, that's the rule. We do know that in Acts chapter 1 we saw fire when the Holy Spirit came down on the church. But the idea there is the supernatural work that God does spiritually in the hearts of people. What I do is physical. Jesus will come. He's going to do a spiritual ministry in the hearts of people. He will literally change people's hearts. Not only that, He's also a judge. He will save people, verse 16. He will also judge people. There's hell in verse 17. Jesus is the judge. His winnowing fork is in His hand to thoroughly clear the, His threshing floor. He's going to separate the wheat from the tares. He's going to separate the wheat from the weeds. Only Jesus and His truth can do that. Only God knows the difference. We don't. We can't read hearts. So we leave it up to God to decide who and how He will judge. Verse 18, and so with many exhortations, John preached faithfully. What did he preach, by the way? He preached the gospel. There it is, the summer. Isn't that beautiful? The God is the good news. When we talk to sinners, first and foremost, good news. Okay, when you walk away, okay, did I give them good news? Or did I just give them bad news? If I only gave them bad news, I failed. It was an incomplete message. People need the good news. Verse 19, but when, here's part of his legacy as well. His death. He lived for Christ. He died for Christ. But when Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch, was reprimanded by him because of Herodias. So Herod Antipas, he divorced his wife, and then he stole his half-brother's wife. And then John the Baptist rebuked him publicly for it and embarrassed Herod. Herod got mad, so did his mistress. She called for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Herod Antipas complied and had John the Baptist's head chopped off. Gruesome. And apparently he was 
John the Baptist was calling Herod out for all kinds of sins and compromise. Because he's supposed to be representing the Jews, even though he was Idumean. Another total hypocrite. Stack it on all the things that he had done, and Herod got his revenge. He added this to him all, and as a result, he had John the Baptist locked up in prison. Well, I leave you with these words. Let's follow faithfully in the steps of John the Baptist, who had that wonderful privilege of dispelling the silence and the darkness with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, where we are commissioned to give people the knowledge of salvation. Let me go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for our time together, and, um, and Lord, help us to continue to understand the truth that we've just read and also the implications of how we can represent you faithfully. And Lord Jesus, thank you for being a Savior to sinners. Commit our time to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.